Hello, and welcome to Off the Record. Usually Zach does this, but we had a little technical difficulty at the start of the show, so I'm going to dub this in right now. You're going to hear us answer some user questions real fast. Um, some of it sounds like a long rant for me because Zach's parts got deleted, but I promise you after five minutes, you won't have to hear my weird voice anymore. Enjoy the new show. One question for this week is our thoughts on band name changes and uh, how that works, whether you have to change your name legally or if you are relaunching as a new band uh, because maybe you are changing your musical style or you have member switches or you're just not comfortable with what's going on anymore. Uh, and, and my thoughts, I think this is something that rarely sort of works if you're relaunching your band because you're changing musical direction um that's often something that you just sort of it's rare i think that you gain fans instead of just sort of losing steam uh because some some people are not tech savvy some people do not follow you on social media some people are just handed down your music from friends on a spotify recommendation or something like that and uh those people may never hear from you again for some random reason and and not everyone is a member of Tumblr and, and follows you. Um, there's also there's also situations like uh, a Never Shout Never, um, which Jesse, I think you would agree, he has three different he has three different projects, including Never Shout Never, and he he expresses his weird sort of musical tastes through that uh, through three different avenues. So if he released a dance and then metal album through Never Shout Never, his major label and his normal fan base probably wouldn't react too well to that. No, I'd say not. Uh, and then there's also sort of the, the third pillar of that, I would say, is legally, um, where for some reason you might have a, there, or not for some reason, a band might have a trademark against you, uh, or a previously filed trademark, where, uh, for example, Bad Timing has a band now called Future Crooks that we signed. They had tried to get a trademark uh, it was a little too expensive, so they waited. When they checked, once again, the trademark was filed under a new band, and they missed out on their chance, so we had to change their name from Crooks to Future Crooks. It wasn't a big deal, but uh, for general advice, if you are going to be a band and you want to be a band and your trademark is available, go for it. Don't wait. Uh, the Internet is a terrible place, and you're going to lose your trademark. Uh, maybe. I think there's also something to changing your name sometimes, too, when you change uh, your sound a lot so that fans aren't mad um, and get that it's something different. I think uh, a lot of bands don't do that enough. And I, actually, you know who I always, while I'm not a fan of their music at all, is uh, that Christopher Drew kid, like how he's smart enough to have these different musical identities and use different names for it is smart because it keeps your fans from being pissed off. Let's talk about, though, the, the there's two of the most common things. Is One, the band hates their name, and they just got started with it. My advice always is, is that you have to change that as fast as possible because then every day you're about your life, it's re-educating fans that you already had that your band name is different. And then two, there's the legal thing. So I went through this and had a very rough time with it when uh, I was managing a band called Future Ghosts, who now go by the name Unifier. And they had their YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, everything pulled right out from under them from a band that was barely active named Future Ghosts, but had applied for the trademark. And even though legally, one of the things about the band name is, is that you have to keep 
it in use and making interstate commerce. What interstate commerce means is that you're doing business more than just in one state. So somebody from another state is buys your music on Bandcamp, let's say. That's enough to keep the name active. But this band was doing nothing, and they still were able to take the name away from a band who was very active in touring at the time and just put out a new record. And what we had to go through to deal with that stuff was just hellish, absolutely hellish. It was no fun at all. If there's any advice I can impart, it's one, uh, unless the band hasn't been around for a really long time, you really don't want to deal with the hassles of if somebody already has the band name. Um, And then two... Uh, make sure that you're going to be able to get to the top of a Google search, because if not, you're going to have a hell-ish time trying to get your band popular. Here's some best practices. One, if your name is never going to be at the top of the Google search, what I often think about is um, I work with a really great band called Kenya, and they've shot themselves in the foot because they're never going to be the top Google search. Even if you write Kenya music in, it's going to come up as Kenyan music. You've shot yourself in the foot when you have a band name that can't be at the top of Google. Um, there's a website called NameCheck. Uh, I believe it's N-A-M-C-H dot C-K. And that will tell you if the name of your band is available on social networks or not. Um, but y- it's so important that people are going to be able to do it. And the other thing is, too, is like before you name your band, you got to go on iTunes. Here, So here's an interesting one. There's a band from the late 80s called Man Overboard. But... It was just like they never really did anything, so we didn't really worry about it, and they got the rights to their name. Um, but there was tons of other man overboards. They just happened to be the one that beat everybody to the punch. Um, the other interesting thing about names, too, is if the person is very inactive and you can prove that you were the person who popularized this name and this person was kind of squatting the name, let's say, you can actually get the rights even if they started using it first. Um, it's a, you don't want to have to deal with this because the money to pay for this type of uh, lawyer stuff is way too much. But let's say your video goes viral and you get 10 million views and, uh, some local band that played four shows, uh, says, no, we had that band name first. You're going to actually get the rights to it because you got popular first, but you're going to have to deal with it in the law. You're not going to be able to afford to do that. Um, so I would try to just name your band something original. So these questions, there's two questions that I thought went well hand in hand with each other. So um, this question says, last week's episode about local bands was really great. I know. Um, (laughs) But uh, to follow up on that, it would be interesting to hear your opinions on how these more localized bands can produce great recordings on a tight budget. Um, So this is my area of expertise, I'd say. Uh, Uh, yeah, you need to do a lot of due diligence. So what I talk about in the book is um, you want to go through your records, particularly maybe some of the local bands you've seen do good and bands that you like. Um, Who produces and records your music needs to be taken very seriously. I think a lot of bands don't take it seriously because they just think it's all the same. Um, But what... I do and other producers do is a very big deal and it definitely makes a huge difference. Um, But you want to see some of the names and figure out how far you can travel and you want to figure out a budget and you want to call these people, talk to them, see what happens and also ask them. The number one question I don't get asked that every band should be asking is, I like this record and what you did with this band. 
how much would it cost for you to do what you did with them with my band? That will get you somewhere, whereas the usual email I get is, uh, we have $1,200 and we'd like to record 12 songs. Where'd you come up with that number? <laughs> it's totally ridiculous the way bands walk into this. When bands you know, sit there and they say, I want to be as big as senses fail, let's say, because they're on my mind. And they then ask, like, and then they just say, come up with a random number of how much money that would cost to make a recording as good as senses fail. And it's not informed. It's not logical. Um, so doing this on a tight budget, yeah, you got to do a lot of research, find who's doing good work lately. And, you know, that's another big thing, too, is that not every producer is going to be the right one for your band. The good producer band combo is a lot about filling in the blanks for a band. So, for example, some producers are really good at vocal melodies but don't know anything about drums. If you have a terrible drummer, that producer is not going to help you be good. So you got to find somebody who would uh, who will do you right in that respect. I guess the last thing I'll say about uh, tight budget planning, um, actually having played your songs for about a month or two after they've been written and gone over it, that takes down the price of recording a lot. Um, having all your background vocals and harmonies written beforehand, I mean, just demoing in general. That takes down the cost of recording. Um, being as thorough as you possibly can, that's really, really a uh, big thing with keeping the budget down. And uh, I think that's all I have to say on that. So the second question that piggybacks on this is, I currently just started a band and we've worked on about five songs, but we can only really see putting two of the five on a cohesive body of work, whether that be a longer EP, six or seven songs, or a shorter full-length, eight to nine songs. My question is, besides obviously practice and keep writing, is there any advice that you're going to be creating songs that will work together? So I think as a band, especially when you first start, you have to uh, find your sound. Like very few bands come out and the first 10 songs they write are cohesive and will sound exactly how the band's going to sound when they hit their peak in fans' eyes. Um, I think the best thing you can be doing, and this is another thing, so it's the best thing you can be doing for promoting your music and the best thing to be growing is to do nothing but small releases at first. Put out one or two songs. They don't even need to be a release. Then maybe work your way up to an EP or three and then start thinking about a full length because people will view those each as their own stage It'll keep people talking about you and keep you on people's minds. It keeps you being newsworthy. But it also isn't as weird as when you put out an LP and people are like, oh, well, I only like those two songs. And those are the two songs that sound like your next LP, but no one likes that record because you put it out as one big body of work. It's definitely best, in my opinion, uh, for the growth of your band and for your band's body of work to put out small, small, small releases as you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting to me, too. I... I I agree as hmm. I agree, but then I also see people. I also see fans that don't agree. Um, like so, this is like uh, both real friends and Knucklepuck have sort of done this model. Real friends released three EPs before uh, putting out a record, and, and Knucklepuck are actually on track to do the exact same thing. Um, and that's been going really well for us because uh, it's hard. You know, some bands release a record as their first ever thing in the world, and it's great, 
and it either does really well or it's great and uh, no one hears it. Or just assuming it's great. And it's it's hard to then, if no one really hears it, you just do, you just wrote and released a record. It, you're not going to be able to pop. And let's just say you get some excitement and some interest in your band six months later. People are going to want or expect new music and you're not going to really be able to write a new record and put one out so quickly after. So EPs are a really interesting model, I think, to to learn how you are as a band internally, both for writing, releasing, touring, and then in addition, get get new fans along the way before building up for a record, whether that's because you're holding out to sign to a label or hoping to sign to a label or any combination of things. I, th- I think it's beneficial and can and you can sort of track your growth that way as well. However, with with Knuckle Puck, you know, we do see kids all the time like beg for a full length. And that could be a lot worse, right? People are excited for the band to eventually do a full length. But some people get pretty bummed out about it too. They're like, "Oh god, you got to release another EP. Like can't you just write a record?" And like, you know, obviously those people are you know, that you take them at face value or whatever. It's not like they're it's not like they matter fully or more matter more than what the band feels like they should do. But um, there is definitely like a pull of fans that just expect a record out of a certain amount of time. Um, so you, you got you obviously should or hopefully will do a full length eventually. Um, Bad Timing is talking with a band now that we're interested in maybe putting out a release or two for. Um and they wanted to do it. They're, they're a relatively young band and not many people have heard of them, but they have some people like them. Um, and they were talking about doing a record next. And, and we strongly suggested that, hey, maybe you guys should do a split and an EP or either or whatever, just so there's a little more buzz beforehand. So when there is that record, it's sort of all all good, all, you know, it's just a perfect storm of hitting instead of just kind of missing out it, I, I can't imagine like it's got to be a bummer i would think just to like release a record as your first thing get a little interest and then be expected to release a record like eight months later which is not possible Ooh. you know it's, it's just not feasible uh and then then you just get in sort of an awkward an awkward cycle and so yeah it might you might really want to do a record first and there's there's also like nothing wrong with that like please do that if that's what your heart really really desires um but at the same time like it's just tough you got you got to feel it out it depends sort of your priorities if you're able to tour so much if you need to it just depends on a lot of things i think that that's uh great advice but i would say the people who get mad about the eps are just that thing of that somebody's going to complain, complain about everything you do. I think that's a small minority that is just complaining and we take notice of it. Most people care about songs these days. I know you're not a playlist person as I get emails taunting you, you about and making fun of you about. Excuse me. <laughs> um, but like most of us in the modern era uh, are more about songs than records. And, you know, I love nothing more when there's a record like the 1975 or the new Porter Robinson record where I can listen to straight through. But like, what do you think? About, well, you, you mentioned that 1975 one, but wasn't that like three EPs combined into one for yeah. a record? Well, it's there's songs from a bunch of those EPs that are on it, but there's other songs that aren't on it that are just on the EPs. But yes, you're very much right. And the songs are totally different than the demos because the production on that record is stunning and probably one of the best produced records of the modern era. But uh, 
it's it's different. But yeah, that is true that they collected their kind of greatest hits for this full length. And they some of those songs are seven years old, I think they said. So that, yeah. that's that's something that's interesting, too. Yeah, that, that's kind of like I get it, too. Like, I, I like that model, too, sometimes. I think it also depends. Like, for 1975, I think it was a perfect timing, kind of like fever pitch moment where like there, there, there was critical mass building and then they put it out and then mainstream mass came in. Um, but for a band like, you know, Real Friends, like that probably wouldn't work out because most of those fans have listened to those songs to death. Um, there's yes. a band called Narwhals on Pure Noise right now. They're, they're from the UK and not many people from here know them. So they, uh, they put their like two or three UK EPs together for like a compilation full length and Pure Noise released that. And I thought that was smart because that's sort of bringing it to the US. But that's a, that's a fringe. It's a fringe scenario, I guess. Hmm. That's interesting. So the last question we had was, with both Real Friends and Knuckle Puck based in the Chicago area, what do you see as the pros and cons of working remotely and utilizing virtual teams versus requiring everybody to be working closely together at the same location? How do you ensure nothing slips through the cracks? I, I think this is almost a funny question because most bands are on tour the whole time, so you're always working remotely, but that's a... That's yeah. A, I don't mean to be insulting, but like that's the thing is, by nature, you have to get the this stuff organized in order to make it work. But I think you have, you, you probably have some interesting things to say about this. Yeah, and by nature as well, like my friend, one of my best friends, Eric, he manages modern baseball. We all go to Drexel together. That's a situation where they were all roommates. Some of them started a band and then one of them wanted to manage them. And so it grew truly organically. But, you know, if, if you are a manager or a record label or a booking agent, the odds of any of us or you like finding a band in your home in your home location of work is is not necessarily rare but probably unlikely um it's the job of it's the job in general of a manager or a label of a of a booking agent to just find bands that they think they can exploit in a good way like uh, make their music popular uh build a business off of them for the band and both for your individual business and all of that and that's not necessarily local to, let's just say, Philadelphia. Uh, if a band's from Chicago or Portland or Iowa, as we love Iowa so much, uh, or Idaho, sorry. Idaho? Is that correct? What do we love? We don't love Idaho. No, we don't love sorry. Boise, no. Yeah, no. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day where you are from unless the only situation where this ever really comes into play, I think, where it, where it can be a negative is if you... Uh, is if the band is from another country. And often in cases like that, you'll see that a band might have uh, two managers, one for the, the country they're from outside of America and one in America. But that's a rare situation. Yeah, uh, I think in my particular case where I work with both Real Friends and Knuckle Puck, it's more than anything beneficial. Um, Knuckle Puck's sort of a year, a year behind of Real Friends just because they've been a band for a less amount of time and they haven't done all that much touring compared to Real Friends. Um, so kids kind of go, oh, wow, Real Friends support Knuckle Puck and they're both from Chicago and from the suburbs and I'm a sad boy from Illinois. Cool, I'm going to check this out. And that's that's how that's worked. And, you know, it's worked well when we've played some shows together and, and just there seems to be a growing fan base there because of those bands. Um, they sort of have grown a little bit of a scene right there, uh, which is awesome for, for anyone involved in terms of working with them virtually. Like, and this is the case for anyone I work with personally, because I do all my work from my bedroom. It's just, it's just good communication. Like Jesse said, bands are on tour most of the time, hopefully. Uh, so 
the only time I ever see knuckle puck are, are when they come through New York or Philly like they are this week. In fact, I was just in Chicago where they're where they were from and I did not see them. <laughs> so I, I think when it comes down to working with a band, it, it just you have to have everything set up for a tour before a tour. Like you have to have your merch orders. You have to have. Do you need any help with uh, loading in or loading out? Whatever kind of information is needed. And then it's like for Knuckle Puck, we usually text every day and we'll have a phone call once or twice a week, depending on what's going on. Um, but otherwise, it can, can be a lot of email. It can be a lot of text. It depends on the band, too. Uh, everyone communicates differently. I assume to the random person listening to this, you don't communicate with every friend or family member you have in the same way it, it it depends it's a per band basis and a per member basis beyond that uh i call joe from knuckle puck most of the time but kevin from the band handles most of the social media stuff and interviews so if we have to do a press thing i email him it's just it's just different uh and the end of this question is how do you ensure nothing slips through the cracks you just got to just got to be on top. That's sort of a more personal organization. Yeah. Thing. I mean, um, well, I, th- I think it's interesting to talk about is maybe we talk about how we've done that. I mean, so every band I've ever managed, Man Overboard, Transit, Unifier, Repeater, um, Washington Square Park was the only one that was local to me. And I guess the Escape Engine, the first band I managed to. Uh, but Google Docs, um, I'd make a thing called a wiki uh, where I put everything we would ever need to know about the band and anybody, any of our people on our team. So if our booking agent or the new tour manager needs to know addresses for people to get through the borders or somebody needs to know our publishing thing, all our bios, addresses, basically anything you would ever need to know, all the passwords that we use are all stored in this wiki, which is just a Google document that we can invite people to to look at. Um, it's nice. It's secure. Yeah, same, same here. We have like, yes. And Google has so many different options and it's very, very easy. Uh, I use, uh, sheets. I think they just call it. We have one that has all the band personal information, like mm-hmm. Jesse said. And then we use, uh, we use also that for the band has a tour sheet where, uh, it's, we have a business manager now. Also, it's nice for me to see how much uh how many people went to each show or what their guarantee was that night how much merch they did expenses so for taxes and also for just knowing what kind of income is in is coming and what kind of income is leaving the band um so yeah google docs is very effective and dropbox is very effective as well dropbox i think is one of the most crucial tools for it uh i really i'm a big fan of evernote too for storing things skype for conference calls that's really it yeah, yeah. Some some band members are more. I mean, I think most people are at this point are just technologically able, but some some humans are just not as into being on their phone or being on their computer all the time. Mm. I envy you. Teach me how. But really? um, you don't want to really know. Come on. No, I don't really want to know. A riot fest was difficult enough this weekend. <laughs> I ha- I had separation disorder. Oh man. Uh, um. Uh, <laughs> I would just say, I mean, you have to, the thing is, like, you have to keep an open mind per band, per agent, per whatever basis. Uh, like, you're also working with a team of other people, potentially. Like, you need to know how to communicate with your booking agent differently than you might with your label. You need to learn how, like, how some people work and some people don't. It's just, you just need to be good at communicating. And also, the, the best way to not let stuff slip through the cracks, I think, is... If you need to do something, write it down in the place where you always look to do stuff. Like, mm-hmm. don't don't let it wait because you're going to forget. 
Um, I used to, that never used to be a problem for me because I used to just only have like one job. Now I have 16. So, uh, over, I actually over the past few weeks and I'm still not there yet. I've been trying to put together a solution of what works best for me for sort of things to do that are coming up or will be coming up soon. Um, cause there's a difference of whether to like you have something to do tomorrow or something to do in the distance future that you really don't have a due date for, but it's still important that you're able to find that because if you think of something that needs to get done in nine weeks from now, like the odds of you remembering, unless it's a milestone thing are, are pretty slim. And if you thought to remind to do yourself at all, like it's probably somewhat important. So I would just say like, whether it's a reminders app or a to do app or whatever, just like get it, get it down somehow. Have you read the book Getting Things Done by David Allen? I have. I think that that's the best way for that is I I segment my to-do lists into like today, next week, coming up, someday maybe. Um, Cool idea for when you're bored. But I segment my to-do list really, really, really hugely. Um, The other thing I do is I use multiple inboxes in Gmail and I star everything that I'm working on. So I'm always seeing it when I'm checking my email and it stays on my mind. Hmm, that's good too. Yeah, and if you um, if you are interested in this getting things done thing, which you should really look into, uh, there is a podcast called Back to Work with Merlin Mann and Dan Benjamin on the Five by Five Network. So much of that show completely revolves about sort of getting your life together organizationally and best practices, and also not being miserable while doing that. Uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts in general. There, I have to listen to that. They're just incredible. Uh, it might take a minute to listen to, but they also have like a series of episodes strictly on getting things done. Um, so that might be easier for a random person to listen to if you're interested on just getting your life together that way, and it should be more enjoyable. Um, so I'll put those in the show notes, and uh, I think that's I think that's it there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this next segment. Um, happened or came about from a conversation I was having on Twitter with our friend Johnny Minardi. Um, And Johnny asked me, I think he said, I think to myself, where's the next Nirvana? Will it happen? And I think as we often joke on this podcast, because I'm the punk rocker who listens to a lot of dance music, I find this very funny when people ask this to me. Because every one of my dance friends knows that the next Nirvana already happened, and his name is Skrillex. And uh, people have always been wondering where this massive change is going to happen. And I think a lot of rock people have their heads so far up their asses that they don't realize that rock got (coughs) very obsoleted recently. Skrillex was the the nirvana of that thing, whether... Whether you love or hate him, he was one of the big ushering-ins of this new ADM era. I think the perfect evidence of how far this has gone is that the last two years, like all the best rock song awards at award shows have been to songs that aren't rock and have no guitar in them. Like that Muse Madness song one, it has a guitar solo, but it's mostly synth and EDM production. And Lord won everything this year. And those are not rock songs. Our tide has changed for now, and I don't know that it's forever. I think that Skrillex was the Nirvana moment, and that's why we see EDM be so big now. Yeah, I don't think I've ever thought about it that way either, uh, like about Skrillex, because like the, the way the, the question is sort of phrased is, 
or I think the way people think about it is because Nirvana was Nirvana, like it has to be rock or something in that family. But you know, Nirvana, like what was what was before Nirvana? It was Guns and Roses. Guns Guns and Roses was a was a big, big, big change. And then some people would also argue before that uh, that like. Phil Collins and Prince did a big thing to the underground or to the uh, mainstream. I'm sorry, uh, with their production, and then uh, you know the Ramones was a big moment. Led Zeppelin. Yeah, and so uh, just thinking about those bands, like they don't they don't sound alike. Uh, well, but that's the so thing like, is, yeah, it's always a, 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 cha- a right, sea change. It's, it's always a. It's not necessarily a backlash. It's or sometimes it can be, but it, it's it's just an it's a new shift of, of tides and. Uh, you know, Nirvana was obviously a, a very large one, and there was some mainstreamification of punk stuff, though that was never quite as large or, or monumental as something like Nirvana. Um, and I don't think anyone would sort of say that all that rap metal stuff was uh, a Nirvana. <laughs> it was just something that was there for a long time. So I think if you think about like the next, the next musical artist whether it's a band or a solo or or whatever that really sort of changed things and and brought a new era of music into the mainstream world was definitely skrillex uh Mm -hmm. and that because that was it was just not like anything i knew before personally right like i think i'm also maybe sort of a good demographic for that too like i was i guess 16 somewhere in that age group um in high school where I first heard of Skrillex. In fact, I was never, I really didn't know anything about from first to last to tie that into like hmm. this world. So I, I had no idea, uh, about that, that like he, that he was in from first to last and all that. So I just sort of heard about Skrillex because a lot of the people that I don't like in school, uh, were making fun of me for listening to pop punk. And they were like, I don't know, man, I'm just listening to Skrillex. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, I have no idea what that is, and I I didn't like it, but that didn't mean I didn't start seeing that it was slowly, quickly becoming a very, very large thing. Um, yeah, I, I would say, like even just thinking about him, like Skrillex headline, you know, bamboozle this one year, and obviously there's a lot of tie-ins there because he was in from first to last. But I remember going that year, and the crowd there was like there for Skrillex. It was not. It was not like a bunch of seventeen-year-old uh, scene boys and girls. It, it was definitely like a new tide of people, and we're still hearing and seeing the effects of that today. It's definitely it's definitely something that did not exist or was not knowledgeable to anyone. I think in a in a broader sense of music fans until mm. Skrillex was a thing. Like you well, do, you knew well, I, well, I knew nothing I, of I, that world. Sure, I think there's an interesting thing too, though, because like I kind of alluded to this too. Is that my dance friends all get this, and uh, you know, I should say my Brooklyn hipster friends also a bunch of them get this that have diverse music taste. But you know, it's an interesting thing, and I was just guilty of this when I was talking about the bands that change things. Is you know, I have a lot of friends who I mean, I work with a lot of people who were very hip hop influenced. Like you know, I had a rap group in high school, middle school, just as I had a rock group, and kids always thought that was weird. But the other thing that people don't realize is there was also another Nirvana that you know, rock people don't discuss, which was Public Enemy and NWA. They changed everything and like every bit of gangster rap that we have today and all that stuff, that's NWA and that's Dr. Dre and that's Dr. Dre record, the Snoop Dogg record. That was a huge, huge Nirvana moment because if you want to talk about like the Nirvana moments being basically like 
when everything kind of resets and you see a lot of groups get obsoleted and a lot of music change, like you could no longer rap about like even just thing like things like I like big butts seemed totally silly after you heard straight out of Compton the first time or you heard by the time I get to Arizona or any public enemy song pretty much from that era. And they made everybody look different, different. but I think like it's a funny thing too, is because I think a lot of people diminish how big Skrillex was, but like, I think it was 2012. He was the most streamed artist. And the other thing to remember is he was one of the most popular artists, one of the most highest concert grossing acts in a year. I think he was number two in 2012. And this is also somebody who had never put out a full-length record at that point. He had only had two EPs out. When have we ever seen somebody get that mass of off of basically 12 songs? Maybe 14 songs. Man, now that I'm... Well, now that I'm thinking about it, like the public enemy thing, that's very clear, I would say. Like, that, that makes perfect sense hearing it. But... It's not, do you think more of, it's not an issue, obviously, but, like, maybe it's more that the the normal listener, the, the person, like, the, a, like a, a, I don't know what class you would, what class person this would be, but, like, Public Enemy is very much different from rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, Skrillex is very much different from rock. Like, the, these are, Nirvana is very, not fully, but is also very much different than rock. Like it the was, Beatles, it was, let's say, sure. Yeah, like there, like there are these, there are these sects of music, set, uh, like different classes of music that maybe are loved by hundreds of millions of people, but they're still the loudest sort of vocal majority or whatever. Like that is just a, a not a classic rock person, but like a rock person, and they don't they don't respect or have minds open to like oh Nirvana. That's just like like that. So I, I would imagine to a lot of people was like these crazy people against the world. Right. And, and, and like rap or like rap like that was not, was certainly not like a, an accustomed thing for people to hear. And, and Skrillex no, scared, today, scared the living shit out of right, most right, of so, the nation that a bunch of black people were this angry. It was a very big moment in society. Like, wouldn't you also then just imagine that a bunch of like people that Everyone that liked hip hip hop or rap would sort of acknowledge that that was a big turn, just as people that liked EDM or dance music would acknowledge that Skrillex is a big turn. But it seems like the people that don't recognize that are the people that are the most quote unquote mainstream, like radio world. Not like mainstream can mean a lot of different things. Like if Skrillex is one of the largest touring acts in the country, then there's clearly a huge mainstream amount of people that like and love him and will pay good money to see him but that's different from the people that are playing songs on the radio or listening to the radio I think yeah does that make sense yeah I yeah I mean I don't know that I have much to comment on that but because I pretty much agree with you but yeah like I think that's the big thing is that we don't always see it's easy to have musical blind spots especially like when we talk about our punk world like I always think it's very funny because most of my friends, while I have a bunch that are into dance, most of my friends are punk people, and a lot of them are people I've been going to punk shows with for twenty years. I think it's very funny that like so. The, here's the perfect examples. I'll say to them, "Oh yeah, I produce and manage this band, Man Overboard," and you could say punk is your favorite style of music, and not have a clue who half the punk bands are because we're so far down these rabbit holes that you could. It's not even about obscurity. That could be a huge band that plays to 2,500 people in certain cities and people just have no clue because there's so much to digest that you can have a total blind spot to a whole part of your genre. Never mind a whole different type of music you don't even care about. Yeah. God, there's so many different rabbit holes. (laughs) Um, 
I want to say this too, since we're talking about the Nirvana thing. Um, I'm going to go on a limb. I'm going to say it's not for sure, but I think I think Lord is another Nirvana moment. I think we're going to see a lot of girls with laptops coming out, making really, really uh, incredible music. And we're going to see a lot of, we're already seeing a lot of things. Like if you read a lot of billboard articles that like music is shifting to this because, you know, so teenage girls are who buys the most music. And we've been seeing that more songs are written from a female perspective instead of a single sex perspective, uh, or I should say single sex, a, uh, androgynous perspective where you don't know what it's from and that we're seeing many more songs that are about girl being a girl. And I think we're going to see that trend continue and that there's going to be a whole generation of younger girls who watched the Lord do this at a young age and say, fuck yeah, I can do this. Just as the Ramones made tons of punk rockers say, fuck yeah, I can do this. Lord's going to make tons of girls say, I'm going to make music on my laptop. I'm going to be a star like her, especially because, you know, it's not like, I don't mean to be mean because I love Ward more than anything, but it's not like she got there on her looks and her sexual attraction. She got there because people love this record. I'm one of them. It's one of my favorite records of the past few years. Yeah, and in fact, like I remember, going, God, I don't know where I was. I, I, I had. It usually takes me a fair amount of time to hear anything that's sort of out there uh, because I live in a hole. But I, I remember going to a Touche Amore AFI show. I don't know when that was. Um, Touche Amore AFI show, and I think it was last fall. And it, we were in a, we were in, I was in, like in a cab with some of my friends, and that Lord song came on, and I'd never heard it before. Uh, and I think that was sort of right shortly after it came out. But then, like I, I I've never experienced something else like this in in a mainstream sense, where suddenly like everything was Lord, everything was that song. It just felt like this like groundswell, and in a different way than like. Katy Perry is really popular, you know. Like, like to me, that's a that's like a pop star kind of thing. But with with Lord, like to what the credit you were just saying, like it also just felt immediately different to me, and I think it stayed uh, different all these months later. So yeah, get your head out of your ass, rock people. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So all right. last week, it'll be a week ago uh, from when the show ends, uh, Apple had their uh, September iPhone event where they released two new iPhones, announced Apple Pay, and uh, pre-announced the Apple Watch. And then there was one more little thing at the end of their two-hour keynote, which was U2 came on stage. Uh, they not only played a song uh, from a new record after they play- finished playing the song, Bono and Tim Cook, Apple CEO, had a little skit on stage where it was announced and then released that U2 had a whole album ready to go and that there wasn't going to be any sort of run. uh, There wasn't going to be any sort of like uh, rollout plan for it. The rollout plan was literally as soon as Tim Cook and Bono touched fingers with each other, that all 800 million people that have an iTunes account would be granted free access to the U2 album and it would show up as their own and that they could download it, listen to it, all of that. And that promotion would run until mid-October. And I assume that means if you sign up to Apple on October 30th, you're not going to have the U2 album for free. But anyone from now until then has it for free and it will remain free. People freak the fuck out about this in a really negative way. Uh, uh, Right here, right here. (laughs) And I think you're a baby. Oh, (laughs) Oh, I think everyone is being a massive baby about this. Okay. My thing is, like, with with half the people, like, 
If this was a Kanye West album, most of the people complaining about this would not be complaining about this. If this was a Lord album, most of the people complaining about this would not be complaining about this. There, like people are going like it's okay to not give a damn about you too. I don't give a damn about you too. Um, I, I fucking hate you too. And that's and that's fine, right? Like I don't I don't have an opinion either way. But like people are freaking out that it's like this crazy invasion of privacy and like I got hacked and whatever. And it's just like does it like really like who, like who cares? <laughs> uh, it's I I just don't like everyone just doesn't like you two and they are pissed. However, like I I really think if it was. Like what if it like what if it was Beyonce, right? And instead of the album that she dropped secretly at midnight on iTunes last December, if it was a Beyonce album, I'd like, still be would just be, as pissed. And I, I like, think you're like, like don't I, you think I like, don't you I think like you're Beyonce. in the minority of people that would be pissed though? Like don't you think most people would be like, oh my god, this is the greatest thing ever? And then tw- uh, twenty minutes later, there are twenty BuzzFeed articles on the new Beyonce album and how great it is. Sure, because people who read it. In- enjoy BuzzFeed as a news source, uh, have small enough brains to like that record. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so mean. Uh, so I, I would just first say this, that, yes, I, I wasn't actually mad. I think it's just fun to be an asshole on Twitter, um, which I complain about in other people too. Um, big hypocrite. But I, I, Apple needs to have a breakup with their boring music to sleep with your boring significant other two bands. Like, they have to stop with this U2 Coldplay John Mayer shit. Like, it's just such a bad look for such a great brand. But uh, They love Coldplay, man. Oh, God. It's the worst. The fucking worst. Um, I don't like Coldplay. If, if it was a Coldplay album, I would have been pissed. I think it's annoying, though, that you do have to hit the lead and it takes up space in your browsing like you know U2 is one of those bands I actually love their early material but their later material just like Metallica has made it so I absolutely hate them um, the Edge's guitar tone was the worst thing I've ever heard during that guitar that uh, event and uh, I just I don't think it's right that you invade somebody's uh, space and uh, you know that, that's my own private place to curate I don't want that crap uh, to to, to- Add to that comment. I just yeah, I did just put in the show notes. Uh, Apple today released a one-click tool to remove it uh, from your iTunes, and I just put that in the show notes for anyone who won't see that and may actually listen to this. Um, so I, I get that point. I think that like I get that. It's just to me, there's a difference between being like, oh, it kind of sucks. Like I have uh, I have 40 megabytes left on my iPhone, and that just took up all of it. Yes, uh, I'm one of those people who's always living with 40 megabytes left on their iPhone. So maybe I do have room to complain. Yeah, and so that's that's cool with me. Like it's not cool or not cool. Like that that I get. There's just been like people really went all out. Like I, I don't know. It has been a while since I've seen anyone like mass hate on something that. It just wasn't really that big of a deal. It was just because it was you too. Uh, I don't know. And I it's also the- fun to make the jokes. Like the poor me coffee tweet about the, about this being worse than the NSA spy got us. Like it's funny. Yeah, I didn't see that. That is funny. <laughs> I, I do think Apple does need to. That's like that's a very Steve Jobs thing. Uh, the the U2 connection. Obviously there was a U2 iPod, but I, I don't know. Someone, some, a lot of people commented on this Twitter, like 
U2 was kind of cool back then. Uh, nope. For some, nope. uh, for some people, nope. I think they were, man. No, that, that, it, listen, any moment after Octung Baby, they lost all coolness. I don't know that. And I'm, I'm the barometer. I know that came out when you were like four. I, I'm the barometer of cool, as we all know, as I sit in my Williamsburg, Brooklyn apartment. So Vertigo was just a hit, man. Like you got, you have to respect Vertigo. Okay? That's a terrible song. <laughs> I don't like it. I think that's when the iPod got released, though. That's yeah, yeah. I, 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 do you want to talk about another thing that people were making a big deal out of? That the death yeah, out of the iPod. I did that. Who cares? The iPod after Apple's uh, announcement, uh, they updated their store to show all the new things that they had announced, and uh, the, the iPod Classic was killed off and and has been removed from Apple's website completely. Uh, I think it's much more of a nostalgia thing than anything. Yeah, right? I'm like, a very not nostalgic person. I hate the past and I hate nostalgia. I do. I fucking hate it all. I live in the moment, man. You live in the moment. Um, the I, you all, you also went through moments though where you had record players and CD players and did you ever have of a course Walkman? I I had I had a disc man that literally weighed more than like six iPhones. Me. That I yeah. carry in my jean jacket to school in eighth grade. Yeah, the like the iPod just sort of changed. My life in the fact that it changed how I listened to mu- music at such a young age. The first iPod I ever got, I think, was the third generation one. It was one where there were the bu- the play, pause, fast forward, rewind buttons were on the were on top of the click wheel, like not on the click wheel. They were they were below the screen and above the click wheel area, um, and the the buttons like lit up orange. Mm-hmm. And that was the first one I ever got. I think I was in fourth grade, so I was let's just say ten, and it was just. It was interesting to me because I, you know, I listened to a bunch of podcasts this week, both tech and music, where this got brought up, and a lot of people were like, "I could have never imagined this because before I had an MP3 player that held that held twenty songs or something." And, and to me, I was like, "Well, I never had an MP3 player before, and I didn't really know that they existed either." Um, but it certainly gave me this chance to listen to all this music, and it was a chance I never had before. So I think more than anything, it's just kind of. It's a it's a product that I feel like it never got antiquated or like it never got the thing that like Apple killed it off by mm-hmm. itself with the yeah, iPhone. They obs- they obsoleted so, their own product. Right. It wasn't like um it wasn't like there was something that came after the iPod like like the iPod came after the CD player, right? Like the like actually the iPhone is just like the iPhone has the same iPod technology or whatever that all the iPods had. It's just you don't have those two devices anymore. You don't have a Razer cell phone and an iPod. Yes. And I think what, why it's maybe a little more nostalgic to some people uh, than maybe like the CD going away was is because like the iPod at face value is still really great today. Like you can, it's still kind of rad to be able to hold 120 gigabytes of music and now that's gone uh, in, in some fashion. And that's why I think it's a little different. And I think for a lot of people my age too, like the iPod was something that maybe got us into technology. Um, sure. For me, yeah. especially. No, no, I like, think that that's a great point I, is that it was a huge yeah. gateway for people into technology. Yeah. And it was obviously everything for Apple. You yeah. Know, it, 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 re- it, st- it saved Apple's life. Um, and like I like all I had before an iPod was a Game Boy and that was cool but that was just for games in my mind it had nothing to do with technology but from there on I became an Apple fanboy like I am today uh, and just a, ten, a technology super fan uh, so I think it's just kind of multifaceted in one like 
and still this great technology and two it was a transition point for so many yeah, people. Yeah, I think the, I think I figured out why I'm not nostalgic for it. I only ever owned one of them. Oh, wow. I cuz I couldn't take the sound of MP3s, so I stuck with CDs for a long time. Oh man, I love you. Jeez. And so I stuck with CDs till <laughs> I, I, this is funny. I stuck with CDs and didn't move to the iPod even though I loved picking them up and looking at them. Um, but I mostly also the other thing was too is uh I just plugged my laptop in in my car, and that's how I'd listen to music. And I'd use waves off of it because I'm that much of a nerd. That's insane, Jesse. I, I, dude, I, I will fully – I'm somebody with a multi-thousand-dollar stereo system. I take this seriously. This is my existence and what makes me happy. That's fair. Nah, and, it's all, and, and it's your livelihood. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's my – you know, I, I've been passionate about this for 21 years. I've been making records. Totally, totally. It's so, not, but, it's but not like I, I, I thought it was funny. It's like that, uh, when I was going to Chico, California to do Saves the Day Sound the Alarm, I was like, oh. I think I'm going to do this iPod thing because I'm not going to have like anything to listen to, anything on, and I'm going to do this. I got it, and my parents and I all sat around the table touching it and looking at it mystically, but that was the only one I had because then after that, I got an iPhone. Yeah. Because huh. it, had... it lasted me like three or four years. No, I guess I had three, but they lasted me like ten, uh, like ten years until I got an iPhone, or maybe eight years, whatever. Um, and, yeah. and and now we get mad at the, we get horrified at the idea of sticking with our phone through a two-year contract. I just want that new iPhone, man. I got I pre-ordered I mine. I pre-ordered mine. It's coming I, I, know, I know. I've been I've been fighting it off, and uh... what's the most frustrating thing to me is that my iPhone is currently in Newark right now. And it's just not going to deliver to Friday because Apple says it can't. It's just like, I just want Oh, that. that's really annoying. That's terrible, right? It's like, please give me you. Please. See, see I, I, I have the, this thing of that my girlfriend's getting one, and I know I'm going to just look at it, and I know I'm going to pull the trigger, and I'm going to spend way too much money on it. I know because I'm making great money right now that it's I could just kiss that money goodbye. Because my girlfriend can't have a cooler device than me. Jesus. No, you don't want to be lame. <laughs> I mean, how would she ever respect me if I just have a 5S? Look, man, my girlfriend has an iPhone 4. She'll never listen Ooh. to this, but oh, it hurts me. It hurts me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really funny. Could, could you date a girl who uh, used a PC? Or an Android. Like, what, uh, Oh, no, no. Uh, was, Tom, they, Thomas's girlfriend has an Android and up until three weeks ago had a PC and it was just, I just couldn't look at it. It was terrible. <laughs> I, 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 I often joke about this that like, uh, I only have one friend with an Android and I say I can't maintain relationships with people who I can't text from my uh, computer. <laughs> and luckily that will be fixed in Yosemite. That's true. That's true. But I can't upgrade to Yosemite because I use an old version of Pro Tools. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> Any recommendations? I, I'll recommend a podcast. Uh, there's a, there's a new podcast network called Relay FM. They just launched a month or so ago. Uh, they have cool shows called Connected, Analog, and uh, a few others. Check those out. Um, I, I think that's that's all I got. Uh, well, I saw against me last night as we joked at the top, and uh, that was unbelievable. Go see against me if you ever get the chance. And pre-order my future Crooks record. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great record. Thank you to everyone for listening to Off the Record this week. Head to offtherecord.fm to check out show notes, to leave us any feedback. 
Jesse can be found at Twitter at Jesse Cannon. I'm at Z Zarillo, and our podcast is at Off the Record FM. We'll be back next week.